before we kind of jump into the message part of our gathering, uh, today I, I get the honor uh, of introducing you to someone I call Pastor Joe. Pastor Joe and uh, his wife Lois, this is a picture of them. <clears throat> now, though he might look like a lot of 84-year-olds that you know, uh, I'm almost certain that no one here knows who this man is. Does anyone know who this man is? Anybody? No? Okay. All right. Well, I get to tell you about Pastor Joe. <clears throat> I uh, spoke on the phone with Pastor Joe about a year ago uh, after not having heard from him for almost 32 years. Uh, and he told me a very heartwarming story that my mom used to tell me. But I always thought it was one of those stories that your parents kind of make up in their mind about you as a kid. Does anyone have, any of your parents have like stories that they say like, yeah, when you were a kid, you did this. And you're like, not really. That's probably not really true. <laughs> and my mom used to tell me this story uh, as a kid growing up that was validated by Pastor Joe. Now, Pastor Joe, uh, you know, he's a man of the cloth. So what he says has to be true, right? 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 No, no. no? Okay, never mind. Uh, <clears throat> but he told me, I was on the phone with him. I had reconnected with him. Long story made short. I reconnect with him, and he had, he told me how uh, every Sunday after church. Now, Pastor Joe was the pastor of the church that my family attended right after my parents became followers of Jesus. And <clears throat> almost every Sunday, he said, I would walk up the middle aisle past these white pews. It was a church of the brethren. It was an old country church. Uh, you know, it was... Typical, actually, if you, if you look, Hagerstown Church of the Brethren in Google, it's brick, has a white steeple. I mean, <laughs> it is about as old school church as you can think of. And uh, he said, I would walk down the middle aisle, and I'd walk right up to him while he's, you know, obviously talking to people, praying. And I'd walk up to him at this five, six-year-old, and I'd go, Pastor Joe, when I grow up one day, I'm going to be just like you. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I don't say what I'm about to say to make it seem like I came from a, a hard life. Okay, I, I, I just want to admit that. I, I didn't, like, have a like, real hard life. <clears throat> but the truth was I, I personally was a product of an unplanned pregnancy, born into a home of reluctant matrimony with stories of infidelity, abuse, and abandonment. And... <clears throat> you could say, especially the early years of my life, was in desperate need of some kind of change, some kind of transformation. It's true that uh, my parents did come to faith in Jesus when I was about five years old, and that's another story for another time. But <clears throat> when I tell my story of faith, when I tell people about the story, the narrative of how God led me to him, I tell people, uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I tell them I grew up in a home becoming like Christ. So <clears throat> while other kids my age at that time uh, were telling people that they wanted to be Superman or maybe some other hero from Super Friends, anyone remember Super Friends, right? Oh, right? Um, 
you know, fighting impossible odds against evil. I only wanted one thing, evidently, as a five-year-old. I wanted to be like that real-life superhero that came into my parents' life. And I didn't really know how he did it. And I didn't even really know that it wasn't him. But I knew that when he came onto the scene, things changed. My parents' lives were transformed. And in turn, my life was transformed forever. Fast forward, 1997, I'm a senior in high school, and I'm saying this prayer to God. I'm going, Lord, whatever you want to do with my life, you could have it. Just two years earlier, I had committed my life to the Lord as a 15-year-old, and, and was on fire for God. I, I, I just wanted to do whatever he wanted me to do, and I didn't know if I was good at anything at the time. I was just good at playing piano. And I said, Lord, if, I don't know how you could use that, but... Um, you know, I, I want to be used by you. I want to be used in such a way like, I didn't say Pastor Joe because I didn't really remember it, but deep-seated inside me was this, was this desire to help people experience transformation. And so I entered into Bible college and with that hope of kind of finding my calling. And then almost a decade ago, I picked up a book entitled Transformational Church. I was uh, <clears throat> employed at another church here in the area at the time and heard all about this book and that phrase, Transformational Church. I was like, ooh, ooh, I think I'm going to check this out. <clears throat> and within the first eight pages of the book, I was gripped of what a vision of a church could and should be like. For instance, <clears throat> the authors of this book wrote, and I'm just going to read this because it's just so good. They wrote this, the power of the gospel changes everything. Uh, and by the way, some of you are going to go, now I know where he got all the stuff that he says like every single week, okay? It's nothing new, okay? Uh, just want to let you know. The power of the gospel changes everything, lives, churches, and communities. Transformation is non-negotiable for the Christian church. We can't choose whether change will come or not, but we can choose whether to embrace it or resist it. God calls us to make a transformational impact on the world, not provide a carnival of frenetic activity for ourselves. We have churches filled with knowledgeable religious people not living on mission, wasting their time criticizing those who are. What we lack Keeping us from moving ruts and routines to transformation mission is the clarity uh -huh, of focus that comes from finding the grace of God more enthralling and exciting than anything else. Where many churches desire to make a dif difference, and differences, I misspelled that, transformational churches actually do. I read this, <clears throat> and I was like, whoa. As an almost 30-year-old at the time of reading this, who had grown up in the church and spent most of his life at that time, his adult life in vocational ministry, something in me said after I read that, I said, yes, I want to be part of that. I want to be part of a transformational church. So now... It's 2020, and we're living in what many experts call the post-Christian 
culture. And while there are many things that are different than it was just 10 years ago, uh, now that things are different than they were even 20 years ago or 30 years ago or even 100 years ago, there is still one thing that has not changed. And that is this, the kinds of churches that God is using to change lives are churches that are filled with people who, and listen, because of their posture of increasingly submitting all of life to Christ as master and savior, they are people who are day by day by day being renewed and being transformed. That has always been true. Whether it's been bands on a stage, liturgy, stations of the cross, no matter what it's been, lives have been changed when people who, because of their posture to increasingly submit all of life to Christ as master and savior, are people who are day by day being renewed and transformed and therefore changed people as we say, what? Change people. So, <clears throat> question is though, why is transformation so important? Why are we spending this time at the beginning of the year talking about transformation? <clears throat> well, uh, David Fitch is an author. Uh, I don't, like, I will just say this. When I read from an author, it doesn't mean like I completely align with like every single one of their theological pretenses. I just know that sometimes people who do love Jesus, and even though I might not align with all the theological pretenses, actually have some really good things to say that are true. And so uh, I'll just preface that. So if you're like, David Fitch, I'm going to go read all this stuff, and, and we could have a conversation over coffee of where I draw the line <clears throat> with him, but he's got some good stuff. And this book is, is a really great book, and it's, he has this book called uh, The Great Giveaway. It's subtitled, Reclaiming the Mission of the Church from Big Business parachurch organizations, psychotherapy, consumer capitalism, and other modern maladies. Now, that's a book I can get behind. I like. That's why I picked it up, okay? <clears throat> Plus, it was also uh, a friend of mine who was working on his doctorate at, at Fuller. Uh, uh, this was his professor, and this was the textbook, and he was like, dude, you got to pick this up. It's mind-blowing. I'm like, all right, I'll buy it. And he said this in his book. He says this, <clears throat> the current post-Christian culture can only understand decisions for Christ as something significant if those decisions are tied to a narrative and being transformed by the gospel. Okay? So just in case if you're like, eh, what you said before, can we get someone who's qualified? Okay, here's Dr. Fitch. He's telling you what's up. And today we are living in this post-Christian, uh, post-Christian culture. But the truth is that change lives change lives. God uses transformed lives to transform lives. Because at the end of the day, it is the power of the gospel that changes everything. So the question that I'm posing for us is this. Do you want your church to be a transformational church? Do you? Some of you, yeah. Maybe you're not sure about the whole church thing. Well, let me ask you, the individual, do you want to live a transformed life? Do you hope that tomorrow you are more like Jesus 
than you were today? Do you? If the answer is yes, I've got good news for us today. If the answer is no, like I said last week, come back for a study on prayer <laughs> in a few weeks here. But over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this portion of Scripture that is probably the most quoted when it comes to explaining what it means to experience uh, spiritual transformation, Romans chapter 12. And uh, if you have your, your uh, whatever copy of the Scripture, I invite you to open up to there. We're, we're going to be there. <clears throat> but for those of those who may not have been with us over the last couple of weeks, or for those who maybe who haven't taken an opportunity to take what you hear here on Sunday and then go home and study and maybe meditate and apply to your everyday rhythms. By the way, that's, uh, if you were to ever to ask me like, hey, Phil, what, what do you hope that we get out of this Sunday thing? Here's what I actually hope. I hope that you listen to the message, the monologue, whatever you want to call it, that you take some notes, that you'd go home and you'd look at the scripture for yourself. And what's amazing is that some of the, uh, the resources and knowledge that was only afforded to theologians is now on this cool new website called Google. And it's amazing. Like, you can just ask it a question. And then you can study for yourself what is being said here. And then I hope you would apply what you learn every single day and that you would meditate on this scripture. That's what I would hope. I hope, I hope, that, um, I hope that your time here on Sunday mornings isn't your fix for the week because this is just a candy bar, okay? <clears throat> your food that you need is going to become with your own time in the Word. But with that said, for those that maybe haven't taken the time to look at this, this again, we'll look at it again, okay? So let's, let's read this, Romans chapter 12, 1 through 8. I hope you're there. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in the view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body, all the parts do not have the same function. In the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching and teaching and exhorting and exhortation, giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. And this is where we left off last week, right? And so in week one, we talked about the importance of transformation as we looked at verses one through two and the general understanding of what spiritual, trans, uh, uh, spiritual transformation and renewal looks like. And then we ended the message saying that we would talk about in the next couple weeks, um, made an audacious thing. I said, we're going to talk about what I have personally, I have personally witnessed as the two most impactful tools God uses to bring lasting change in a person's life. And so last week we started that. 
And we talked about the impact of intentionally sacrificing your time and your energy to engage as a part of the body of Christ by serving your church family. You are part of a family, and so you, you, you come to the table, you come to the picnic, you come to the dinner with some rolls at a minimum. You bring something, right? We don't want to be like Uncle Steve, if your name's Steve, forgive me. We don't want to be like Uncle Steve, who always shows up with nothing in his hands, late, walking in going, where's the food, you know, right, right? No, we, we, we want to be that person who gets there early with their crock pot, right, you know, and their own utensils, and then leaves with their same crock pot and doesn't leave their utensils, amen, right, okay. It's a Minnesotan thing. We, we only get that. <clears throat> this, in fact, is how Paul was trying to explain how verses 1 and 2 practically plays itself out. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, I know that sounds really high and lofty. Let me give you some examples. Ah, serve one another. Use your giftings. Use what God has given you to better the lives to lead each other towards love and good deeds and towards greater discipleship. Do that. And just like last week's example is an outflow where we left off from the previous week, the second most impactful tool um, that I've seen God use to bring lasting spiritual transformation in the life of a follower of Christ and in the life of a church as a whole, is inspired in part what, what Paul writes here, writes here in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 10. And here's what he says. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Widely regarded as the definitive commentary on the book of Romans, theologian Douglas Moo gives an insight about this section of Romans we are looking at, and he says this. He says, in urging that our love be genuine, Paul is warning about making our love a mere pretense, an outward display or emotion that does not conform to the nature of the God who is love and who has loved us. He goes on to say, after introducing all the exhortations in verses 9 through 21 with the call for sincere love, Paul now narrows his focus, admonishing Christians to be devoted. And there's that Greek word there that philostrogio, I don't know if that's how you say it. I just said it with confidence and you won't doubt me. To one another in brotherly love in Philadelphia. I can say that one, both key terms in this exhortations, which share the philostem, convey the sense of family relationships. Don't, don't miss this. Paul here reflects that the early Christian understanding of the church was an extended family whose members bound together in intimate fellowship should exhibit towards one another a heartfelt and consistent, a heartfelt and consistent concern. Okay, so what does that mean? Uh, Thanks for reading that. We could have done that ourselves, Phil. If we want to be transformed people, all part of a transformed church that is transforming lives of people within our circles of influence, here's the thing. 
We have to start living life as family. Start living it as family, step by step. One step closer. One of my uh, favorite pastors and highly regarded theologian, Tim Keller, wrote in his book, Center Church, reference. He referenced this reality when he wrote this. If the Christian faith is to have any impact on culture, the time must come when it is widely known that secularism tends to make people selfish. While general religion and traditional morality make people tribal, concerned mainly for their own, but the Christian's gospel turns people away from both their selfishness and their self-righteousness to serve others in in the way that Jesus gave himself for his enemies. That's crazy to think about, okay? Second, we must be a contrast community, a counterculture, countercultural. The quality, distinctiveness, and beauty of our communal life must be a major part of our witness and mission to the world. This is why we, who call ourselves clarity, define discipleship as reorienting your life to live it as family together on mission with God. You've heard me say this over and over and over and over again. I think I even said it in the video. Discipleship is reorienting. That means you are going in a certain direction and you're going to change it. I kind of like the way my life is going. Okay, that's fine. You're just not into transformation. Well, it sounds kind of harsh. Okay, well, then you read Romans 12, 1 through 10, and you tell me what it means, okay? And we'll have a good coffee time, and maybe we might agree to disagree. Listen. It's reorienting what? Your life to live it as family together on mission with God. If you don't like that, maybe you can listen to what Jesus said when he taught this, I give you a new command. A new command doesn't sound new to us, but to the hearers it was. And maybe for some of us, we need to actually read this again so it can become new, maybe with a different perspective, because maybe we've been living this out and not the way that Jesus wanted us to and we've been living it out in just kind of our interpretation of what it should be. But maybe we should listen to this again. I give you a new command. Jesus says, love one another just as I have loved you. Okay, Jesus, you got me on the love one another, but just as I have loved you, oh my goodness. And for the disciples who saw Jesus, this was before he died, these words gave chills, gave them goose pimples, as I like to call it. Oh, We didn't know Jesus was going to love us so much he was going to die for us. That's a game changer. And that's why all the apostles were martyred except for one who was exiled. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you what? Love what? One another. There's a problem, though. There's a problem. Uh, I'm going to read a lot to you today uh, from some other people because I've talked about communities before from my own opinions and just scripture and stuff, and uh, I think that's been helpful. But sometimes I think it's helpful just to, to know that, like, is Phil on this crazy rocker with these communities, 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 like, ah, I don't go to other churches. They don't stress it as much. Well, let me just, I, I want to make a case. That's what I'm trying to do today. And so um, there is a guy by the name of Alan Hirsch. He is a uh, uh, 
four known missiologists, they call them. He's the, regarded as what is, he, as the leader of what is known as the missional church movement, something we're a fan of. And in his uh, book, Forgotten Way, he addresses a problem that many of us face from actually living life as family. He says it in a way that I think will, might give us some ahas and might actually, and it's not meant, it's not meant to give you excuse, but it's definitely meant to help us pinpoint where we need to sacrifice and give up to God what we've been idolizing. And he says this, <clears throat> it's quite a long, so I'll just read it and then it'll be on the screen. I came to the conclusion that there must be something about middle-class culture that seems to run contrary to authentic gospel values. <laughs> I lost some of you there already. Or perhaps we can just say that middle-class culture seems to contain elements that eventually act to attenuate the demands of what it means to follow Jesus' discipleship in our lives. In other words, our own middle-class culture can function like an enemy within. And this is not to make a statement about middle-class people per se. I, myself, am from a very middle-class family, but rather to isolate some of the values and assumptions that seem to just come along as part of the deal. We need to be especially aware of cultural values that we take for granted because we cannot easily see them. Middle class involves a preoccupation with safety and security, developed mostly in pursuit of what seems to be best for our children. This focus is understandable as long as it does not become obsessive. But when these impulses of middle-class culture fuse with consumerism, as they most often do, we can add the obsession with comfort and convenience to the list. We have moved from the missional idea of me for the community and the community for the world to a more consumptive, the community <laughs> for me, and it just about destroyed us. He's talking about the church in Europe there, and we're not too far off. Now, when it comes to middle class, some of you are like, oh, I'm not middle class. I know I'm not middle class. Well, let's, let's look at what the sociologist and, and the economist, 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 all right. <clears throat> what do they say is the middle class? Well, uh, Pew Research is one of these people, and they define the middle class as the 60% who fit between the 20% of the poorest and the wealthiest 20%, which here in America comes out to be about 46,000 to 141,000 per household. Now, I'm not going to make you give a show of hands, but I know most of you, and uh, being a church that gathers here in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, where the estimated median household income in 2017 was 71000 Now, some of you, I say that, and you think you're poor, and you just realized you make a lot more than that. So, <laughs> stop. Maybe your issue isn't that you don't make enough money. Maybe it's you spend too much. But anyways, that's a different message. <clears throat> The chances are that we are a middle class is highly likely, okay? Sorry, I have my boxing gloves on today. <laughs> is everyone okay? You still love me? I love you guys. I hope you know that. 
So in other words, the very life that many of us have worked so hard to build can actually be a stumbling block from us experience the kind of transformational power that comes from aligning the rhythms and decisions of our lives with God's standards. <laughs> the fact that you are who you are, everything that you've worked for, that you went to school for, everything that you put an application for, did every, everything, everything that you've done, you've worked so hard for, it could actually keep you from attaining the type of discipleship, Christ-centered life that you, I know you want. And if we're going to learn to love one another without hypocrisy, then we are going to have to recognize how the culture makes living a transformed life inconvenient. Again, from the great giveaway, David Fitch writes this, because evangelicals articulate salvation in such individualistic terms, and because modern science and individual reason can carry such authority for evangelicals, we do not need the body of Christ for daily victorious Christian existence. In some ways, frankly, we could do without it. We don't need the church to live salvation because we have personal salvation augmented by reason, science, and immediate charismatic experience. I had a dream, you know, and Jesus speaks to me. And the church is left, not that those things don't have, I'm not making fun of those, okay, but the church is left with nothing else to do but distribute information, goods, and services to individual Christians. And so for evangelicals, the church is, in essence, left to be a sideshow to what God is doing for, in, and through individuals. And because of our modernism, we no longer have need for the church to be the social manifestation of his lordship, where he reigns over the powers of sin and of evil and of death, the very inbreaking of the kingdom of God. What a sad reality. A year ago, we relaunched our missional communities with the focus of helping us become a more missional church and a more transformed church, a church that is made up of people who have chosen to reorient their lives to live life as family together on mission with God. And last week, I gathered with our missional community co-leaders, and we got together and we began to list some of the wonderful things that God had done over the year. And quite frankly... As we were going through this list, we were surprised of how many great things God accomplished this past year. I guess it's true that sometimes it's harder to see the forest for the trees when you're constantly thinking about how to make things better and how to, how to make it better and how it could be better. But it was just awesome for us just to go, man, God has been working. Now, I could list them here, but I thought it would be better if just a couple people who are part of our communities told you what the benefit of being part of a clarity community has been for them. So I, I sent out this big thing. I said, hey, uh, anyone who wants to send in some videos, just send in some videos. And I got a couple, and I put them together. And uh, why don't you take a listen? Hey, Pastor Phil, I'm sending this to you because I chose what impact has a clarity community had on me? Well, I will tell you, first and foremost, is meeting regularly in a home atmosphere and sharing the gospel and learning how to implement it in daily life has been a huge blessing. Two, hearing the issues that arise in life, share them, pray for them, and then hear about the outcomes. And third, 
Being welcomed with open arms, always, and come as you are, no judgments. Why do I belong to Clarity Community? I belong to Clarity Community because it has allowed me to make deeper connections with those people that um, attend our church and build relationships and be a place where I can share in my struggles and um, ask people to pray for me and others and build relationships much like you would with um, your blood family. It's now given me a extended family um, that I can grow and learn and become more spiritually mature, um, much more so than if I just attended church. It has allowed me to break that barrier of awkwardness and really connect with people who I um, have learned to, or not learned to, but um, have grown to love and care for um, like my own family. These people that um, go to community are people that I communicate regularly with that I do things with outside of community, um, that I'm so happy are in my life and my family's life and my children's life. Um, and I can't even like, I don't even have the words for what impact it's made on my life. It has taken me from somebody who um, decided to um, turn my life back to Jesus, to somebody that is now turned my life back to Jesus and is growing in faith and spiritual maturity and um, just walk in God's path with all these other people alongside me. It's amazing. Thanks, Travis and Jess, for doing that. Um, here, here's something uh, I'll just put out there. Reorganizing your life to live it as family and community with others personally. You might have a different story. I get it. <clears throat> Reorganizing your life to live in community with others is something I have seen 100% of the time directly influence the direction and the motivation. The direction and the motivation. Let me say that again. The direction and the motivation towards living a transformed life, 100% of the time, 100% of the time. And when people pull away from community, I, <laughs> I, can, I can almost, with 100% certainty, begin to write a storyline of what will happen to their lives. Now, they might not turn away from Jesus but the direction and the motivation to live a transformed life begins to take a second seat to the other aspirations of what a suburban middle-class person is hoping to accomplish in life. And so, <clears throat> what am I asking you guys? I'm asking every one of you to take a step towards reorganizing your life as family. In other words, if you've Never been to a community, I'd like for you to try it once. Just once. If you've been before but you don't come regularly, would you make a commitment for a year? If you've been part of a community for a while, maybe it's time for you to maybe pray about hosting a community. Or even 
inquiring about what it would mean to be a co-leader. Now, I know some of you have been involved in the community, whether it's here with us or it's a previous church, and I know it didn't go well. I, I know that. I've talked to many of you before, but listen, <clears throat> many of you have had haircuts, right? Some of you have had haircuts, right? Haircuts, right? Anyone ever had a haircut that didn't go really well? Yeah, yeah. Do you still get your haircut? Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Okay. Maybe, maybe you're a person that's like, no, I, I, have, I am forever scarred. I just don't even, I don't get my haircut. Okay, have you ever eaten pizza? Have you ever had a, had a bad pizza? <laughs> Those are my children. <laughs> Forgive me. If you had a bad slice of pizza, did that stop you from eating pizza? No. No. And... I don't want you to give up on community just because you had one bad experience. God will not accomplish all that he wants in you and through you until you resist the feeling of inconvenience that community costs. It's going to cost you. In fact, I want you to get strategically inconvenient. I want you to join a community. More importantly... God will not accomplish all that he wants in and through this church if we don't figure out how to live life as family. That's, I, I'm 100% sure of that. That's because you, you, you are his church. And God wants you to be a part of how he transforms the world. C.S. Lewis writes this, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ and to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It is even doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose purpose. In just a moment, uh, band's going to come up, and actually they're going to make their way now, and they're going to lead us in worship. <clears throat> they're going to sing a song entitled, Good, Good Father. And uh, this idea that God is our Father is nothing new. In fact, you can be someone who's never been to church before, and you know about the Lord's Prayer that begins with what? Our Father, our Father. <clears throat> the question is, have you allowed that reality of God being your father to motivate and move you towards living like someone who is part of God's family? That's the question. Sometimes our father is a title, and we don't recognize that it's a reality. <laughs> like, he's your father, and you're his kids. You've been adopted. You weren't supposed to. In fact, everything about you made you unqualified but God looked at you and said, ah, come on in anyways. Day by day, I will make you more and more like my son. And the question is, have you allowed the reality of God as your father to motivate and move you towards living like someone who's part of God's family? That's the question. And so I hope that as we worship today, I pray that each one of us would come again to grips with the wonderful realities of what it means 
to be a child of God and then begin to reorient our lives in what may feel for some as a strategic inconvenience. Not to earn God's favor or to gain salvation, let's just be clear about that, but so that we could align our lives in the way that God promised to renew and transform us.